Welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. So today is our Law Notes episode, and of course, we're going to be joined by Art Leonard to talk about HIV discrimination, access to gender-affirming care, and some um, replays from the Trump administration who are trying to preserve policies of theirs uh, and defeat some of Biden's new practices. But um, before we get into that, this will be my very last episode of the podcast. I've been doing this for five years now. It has certainly been a ride. I'm really proud of the way that we've grown this podcast. We've not only taken it from a podcast where we talk about uh, with art about law notes and, and the various developments that we have every single month on the LGBT litigation front. We've also been talking with people who represent LGBTQ people on a number of issues from James Essex to Richard Signs, all sorts of people coming by who are dear friends of ours uh, to talk about issues. And I'm so glad that all of you have been around to listen and to share your thoughts and experiences and influence the way that this podcast has developed. So thank you all for being listeners. Uh, We have a great episode in store. And when I wrap, you are going to have this podcast continue. Um, It's been going for many, many years, and uh, it's going to be fabulous under its new leadership, which will hopefully be announced soon. All right, so let's get started. Hi, Art. How are you doing? Okay, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I can't believe that this is our last uh, podcast together. I'm going to miss these interactions so much when I think about, oh my God, we covered Bostock, Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, what else? Fulton v. Philly. Yeah, five um, years. Five years. It's crazy. I, you know, everything but marriage equality. And we haven't talked about Roe, but oof. Um, well, but, you know, uh, assuming that like we were doing monthly podcasts in five years. So how many podcasts is that? 60 well, podcasts? <laughs> that sounds about right. Wow. How many hours is that? <laughs> well, the each podcast is about an hour. So yeah, know. but then we do a lot of this too. So we have a lot to discuss. I'm excited for us to discuss this first case. Last month, actually, we did talk about a judge who ruled on a summary judgment motion in involving an HIV positive man who was denied a job as a security officer for fear of transmission of HIV to patients. And this time we have another case involving access for service members uh, living with HIV. Art, can you talk a little bit about the case that we have up today? Yeah, it's it's actually a combination of two cases, but it's under the name Harrison versus Austin. It's before U.S. District Judge Leonie M. Brinkema of the U.S. District Court in Virginia, and she was appointed by Bill Clinton, which I think is interesting uh, because... uh, Clinton was our earlier days in the AIDS epidemic. And uh, one of the things is uh, the military has always been a sort of in a sort of weird situation with respect to AIDS. First of all, because until Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed, uh, technically anyone who came down with AIDS was suspected of being gay. And 
you know, that, that created a, a big problem for them because their regulations already require them to throw out people who are gay. So, uh, you know, it was very conflicting. But at any rate, they adopted the view, even after Don't Ask, Don't Tell was gotten rid of, they adopted the view that anyone who had AIDS or who was HIV positive presented a risk of contagion and therefore they didn't want them in the military on that ground. Uh, and they claimed that anyone who was HIV positive uh, was not deployable anywhere in the world. And they, they took the position that in order to be in the active military, you have to be deployable anywhere in the world on short notice because you know something flares up somewhere and they've got to send people and they don't have time to go person by person deciding who to send. They send whole units and stuff. So they took the position that once we find out you're HIV positive, uh, if you're an enlisted person, we're, gonna, uh, we're going to exclude you and we're certainly not gonna make you an officer. Uh, and so we had uh, two cases here that were combined. Uh, one of them was uh, a fellow named uh, Nicholas Harrison, who served in the army from 2000 to 2003 left active duty, joined the National Guard while pursuing higher education, eventually became a lawyer and decided now that I'm a lawyer, uh, I would like to be in the Judge Advocate General Corps and be a military lawyer. Uh, but in the meantime, during his education, during his time in the National Guard on education, he was in a unit that was deployed to Afghanistan for 16 months and then was later deployed to Kuwait for eight months. Uh, so he had done quite a bit of overseas service. When he came back from Kuwait, he tested HIV positive. Uh, immediately went on antiretroviral uh, meds and his virus is undetectable. And anyone who knows what the current situation is with HIV knows that if your virus is undetectable, it's not transmissible uh, sexually. Uh, and I, I'm from what I've read in cases, it's not even transmissible through a blood transfusion. You know, if your blood is, is donated, uh, if it's a non-detectable level, there's just not enough viral matter in there to uh, transmit an infection. But he applied to be in uh, the Judge Advocate General Corps. He had all the qualifications. He had military service. He had a good conduct discharge. Uh, he had active National Guard duty. He had overseas postings. You know, all the problems uh, that you might uh, think, the, the one thing he might need a waiver for is his age. Because after all this time had passed, he was past the age when they automatically enlist you. If, if you're over a certain age when you want to enlist, you have to go through a very rigorous uh, medical uh, clearance and everything uh, to show that you're fit to, uh, to be re-enlisted. Uh, but he's not gonna be, he's not enlisting to be a combatant. He's enlisting to be a military lawyer. But they refused him on the ground that he was HIV positive. They said, you're not deployable everywhere in the world, so we can't uh, enlist you and, uh, and give you an officer's rank, which he would have if he was a military lawyer. Uh, the other case uh, where we have anonymous plaintiffs are two uh, members of the Air Force, uh, good service records, et cetera, but who uh, tested HIV positive and uh, went on meds. And they also have undetectable virus but they were processed for discharge. And they appealed it all the way up to the secretary of the Air Force who denied their appeal. Uh, the position they take is we're not discharging anyone for being HIV positive. 
we're discharging people who are not deployable. That if people are not deployable for any reason, we would discharge them because we have to only have active military who we can deploy and send anywhere in the world where we need to send military. For example, right now, uh, the president is redirecting several units to Eastern Europe to be uh, in a defensive posture with respect to our NATO allies because of the activities of Russia now in Eastern Europe. Uh, so people have to be ready to ship out. Uh, and that's the position they take. And Judge Brinkema had issued a preliminary injunction against discharging these two guys, which uh, the Defense Department appealed to the Fourth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit affirmed her preliminary injunction. And in a rather detailed opinion where they said, look, the military's got to get up to date on the facts of the medicine here, that they're, they're acting as if it's 1982 or something. They're acting as if, or not 1982, 1992. They're acting as if uh, we don't have good meds for AIDS. We're acting as if contagion is a really serious issue. When in fact, the science now is that it's not a really serious issue if someone is compliant with their meds. Furthermore, in the early days of AIDS, we had meds that had to be refrigerated. We had all this kind of, you know, dietary stuff that you couldn't do this and you couldn't do that if you were taking these drugs. And a lot of it was very experimental. And today it's a bunch of pills and they don't require refrigeration. They don't require any special handling. They're just in plain old little plastic pill cases like anyone who gets their prescription filled at the drugstore is familiar with. Uh, they're not perishable. Uh, they're in ready supply. Uh, there's no big deal. Uh, and so uh, there's, there's a question under the equal protection requirement in the Fifth Amendment, and there's a question under the Administrative Procedure Act, whether the current military approach is rational or is an arbitrary and capricious discrimination. And uh, the Fourth Circuit affirmed Judge Brinkema on the preliminary injunction case goes back and of course is consolidated with uh, Mr. Harrison's case. And she says, the task before me at this point is to see whether there's any new evidence from the military besides what we were already considering on the preliminary injunction. Uh, and there isn't, the, the, the arguments they're making don't add anything new and make it pretty clear that uh, they are just not up to date. And they've got to be up to date on the medical stuff. They can't, uh, they can't be excluding people. Uh, you have, uh, a, it's not like you, you have a right to be in the military in an absolute sense. You have to be qualified, but these people are not disqualified. Their medical condition is not disqualifying. Uh, one argument the Defense Department made is there are no comparators. You can't do an equal protection analysis because there are no comparators to people living with HIV. You said, just a minute, what about all these other illnesses that people have, there are lots of people in the military taking pills on a regular basis for a whole variety of mental and physical things. Right. So those are your comparators. And you have to ask, do these people uh, who are living with HIV successfully and otherwise healthy, uh, are they distinguishable in any way from these other people that would justify treating them differently? And the answer is no. The military also said, look, we don't categorically exclude people. We only exclude people if they're not deployable. And furthermore, there is a procedure where you can apply for a waiver. All right, so the next question you ask them during a deposition or something, all right, tell us about the waivers. How many waivers have been granted to people with HIV? Zero. 
they've never granted a waiver to anyone with, with HIV. So she said that, you know, that's a phony argument, that it's not a categorical uh, discrimination. Uh, so she gives a uh, permanent injunction here. And she says they may not exclude people or dismiss people because they're HIV positive if they are taking their meds and they're compliant and their viral load is undetectable. Number one, I'm just glad to hear that this judge is actually taking the science seriously. That's part of why you go to trial is so that you hope that you get a judge that really weighs medical evidence. But I'm just curious about um, why the Defense Department is is arguing uh, so poorly and this line at all. I mean, wouldn't you think that the Biden administration would be, I don't know, easing up on some of this stuff? Well, you would think it. And I would have thought that after the Fourth Circuit issued its decision, which was in 2020, you know, the military would say, okay, we got to go back to the drawing board and rethink this because they've upheld the preliminary injunction, which is a pretty clear signal that on the final merits, we're probably going to lose. But that was the Trump administration, you know. Uh, And I think, you know, Biden comes in in 2021 and uh, the motions for summary judgment are filed and the attorneys who've been working on the case are working on the case and they just continue along the way they were. I think that's likely. Attempts by the Biden administration to change course on stuff have met with resistance. And we will see that in the third case we're discussing today. Well, before we get to the third case, let's hit the second case after this short break. All right, we're back. And we are talking about access to gender affirming care um, you know, we've we talked about a little bit. We've highlighted the anti-trans policies in uh, Texas and various states, but this time we're going to talk about a case that involves access to gender-affirming care um, under a categorical exclusion by a health insurer. So, Art, talk to us about the child who's involved in this case and what the challenge is. It looks like we've got a case involved, brought under Title VII and the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, and, and this, is, this actually gets us involved with ERISA as well, the Employee Retirement okay. Income Security Act. But uh, Angelia Scott is an employee of St. Louis, Louis University Hospital, and she is also the mother of a transgender son who required gender affirming treatment. But the health insurance uh, provided by the hospital for its employees and their dependents is through a policy issued by Cigna. But uh, as is usually the case in uh, employee benefit insurance policies, it's the employer who decides ultimately what the policy is gonna cover. That is, Cigna offers various products, and I'm sure they probably have a health insurance policy that covers gender-affirming care because there are a lot of employers that do now and would probably, might buy a, a Cigna policy. The insurance company, of course, will charge a different premium depending upon what they're required to cover. Uh, but at any rate, St. Louis University Hospital evidently bought an insurance policy, a package from Cigna for their group health insurance for their employees, that categorically excluded any coverage for gender affirming treatment. Now, the theory behind excluding that coverage is that it's not medically necessary. That is that being transgender is we're told not an illness, not a disability, not something that needs to be cured. 
But gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria is a condition which is identified by the psychiatric profession as a condition that may require in extreme cases treatment. That uh, really serious, strong gender dysphoria requires treatment and the treatment is gender affirming care to help the individual conform their body and their appearance to the gender role with which they are comfortable. So uh, in this case, the policy has a categorical exclusion and she's, she's suing the employer, the hospital, not the insurance company, because she's saying by buying insurance for your employees that has this categorical exclusion, you're violating Title VII and you're violating the Affordable Care Act. And the argument under Title VII is that after the Bostock decision, gender identity discrimination uh, violates Title VII. And under the Affordable Care Act, uh, after the Bostock decision, the anti-discrimination provisions of the Affordable Care Act should be interpreted to forbid discrimination with respect to gender identity. Okay, that's, that's a somewhat controversial point as we'll see federal district courts differ on this. Uh, as to whether uh, the Bostock decision is portable to other federal sex discrimination bans. But starting with uh, the first argument that the hospital is gonna raise is ERISA preemption. ERISA preempts any attempt to sue for benefits other than through the mechanism of an ERISA plan where you apply for benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So the hospital comes in and they say, well, this lawsuit in federal district court is preempted by ERISA. You have to go through the internal administrative process of the insurance company. And the response to that is, well, well, hold on a minute. Uh, Ms. Scott isn't claiming that the insurance policy provides this benefit. She's claiming that the law was violated because the insurance policy doesn't provide this benefit. She's not claiming that the insurance policy specifically covers this. She's complaining that it doesn't. And so she's suing her employer because under Title VII, her employer is not allowed to discriminate with respect to employee benefits on the basis of sex as construed by uh, the Supreme Court as including gender identity. But uh-oh, there's a problem here. They're not discriminating against her, against the employee on the basis of her sex. If she was the father and she was suing, it would be the same as if she's the mother she was suing. They're not gonna provide gender affirming care for the child, regardless of the sex of the parent and the parent is the employee. So the parent is not being discriminated against on the basis of her sex. Yeah. So this is not a valid Title VII claim, says the judge. And the judge here is a district judge. This is an Eastern District of Missouri, uh, Audrey G. Flessig, who was appointed by Barack Obama. She said, we're not contesting that Title VII covers gender identity claims. The Supreme Court has told us so. What we're contesting is whether there is any gender identity discrimination here against the employee. Title VII forbids discrimination against the employee, not discrimination against other people. <laughs> Okay, so let's turn our attention to the Affordable Care Act. Now, the Affordable Care Act's anti-discrimination provision applies to healthcare providers and insurance companies 
uh, in plans that somehow have some federal financial nexus. So it doesn't apply to everybody, but no one is claiming that, that uh, the Affordable Care Act doesn't apply in this case. Uh, but the question is how the anti-discrimination provision will be interpreted. Uh, unlike other federal statutes, anti-discrimination statutes, which list the categories on which you can't discriminate, instead of that, in Section 50, 50, 57 of the Affordable Care Act, it says you may not discriminate on grounds in any of the following federal statutes. And one of the statutes they list is Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, which forbid discrimination on the basis of sex in any educational institution that receives federal financial assistance or federal money, federal contracts, things of that sort. Uh, so. If Title IX forbids gender identity discrimination, so does the Affordable Care Act. And so the first question is, does Title IX cover gender identity discrimination? And the hospital comes in and says, well, we don't have any uh, controlling precedent on that. It hasn't been decided by the Supreme Court. It hasn't been decided by the Eighth Circuit. There is in the Eighth Circuit. Uh, a lot of uh, cases around the country where people have claimed that the Affordable Care Act, by incorporating reference to Title IX, forbids gender identity discrimination. The Biden administration took that position from day one in the executive order that Biden issued on as soon as he got back to the highest to the White House from the parade. <laughs> you know, I guess there wasn't a real parade that year, was there? Because uh, we were already in the epidemic. But as soon as he got back to the White House after being sworn in. Uh, he issued, he, he had a whole bunch of executive orders already drafted up, sitting on his desk, and he went through signing, and one of them was ours, the one that forbids discrimination based on uh, sexual orientation and gender identity in the executive branch of the federal government. And he said, he directed federal agencies are supposed to take the Bostock decision into account and follow its reasoning in construing their anti-discrimination provisions. So that's a directive to the education department in terms of construing Title IX, that's a directive to Health and Human Services and, and its sub-agencies in terms of construing the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so the Biden administration takes that position. And this judge says, look, I agree that in the Bostock decision, the court said, Gorsuch said in his opinion for the court, we're only deciding whether you can bring a claim under Title VII based on sexual orientation or transgender status. That's how he put it. We're not deciding the issue under any other statute. But they weren't saying it doesn't apply in any other statute. They're just saying this is what we're deciding, Title VII. And so it's up to the lower courts and the administrative agencies uh, to decide how they're going to interpret the statute in light of the reasoning of Bostock. And Judge Flessig says, under the reasoning of Bostock, it seems to me that gender identity is covered under the Affordable Care Act. And if gender identity is covered under the Affordable Care Act, you're discriminating. And we have different language in Title IX. It's the Title IX language that counts here. We have different language in Title IX than we have in Title VII. So we've got to look at the language because the Supreme Court in the Title VII case in Bostock purported to be using a textualist interpretation. They were interpreting the language of the statute, which says no individual may be discriminated against on the base because of, of his or her sex, because of that individual's sex. 
in employment. That's not the way Title IX is worded. Title IX says no person may be discriminated against on the basis of sex in any program covered by the education amendments, Title IX. And of course, now by cross-referencing in Section 1557, the same language applies under the Affordable Care Act. So the judge says the protection against discrimination is not limited to employees here. It's any person, any person uh, who suffers discrimination on the basis of sex, not because of his sex, but on the basis of sex. And now applying the reasoning of Bostock, it seems to me that this is discrimination against this teenager, this uh, teenage uh, transgender boy who uh, is not being provided a treatment that otherwise he might be provided. That is the various procedures that are used in gender affirming care are not only used in gender affirming care, they're used to treat a variety of, of uh, situations. For example, there is a condition known as premature uh, puberty. That is puberty blockers weren't developed in the first instance to assist in gender affirming care by blocking puberty from occurring before someone could start receiving hormones. They were devised to block puberty when like if, if someone has overactive hormones at too early an age. And uh, uh, in other words, there are other uses for these medications. In fact, for all the, uh, the gender affirming uh, medications that we have, uh, and also for the surgical alterations that we have for uh, gender affirming care. They're not restricted to gender affirming care. They're also used for other things. So we're talking about saying you could have this procedure for this purpose, but not for that purpose. And so they're saying, we're not saying we're never going to cover the use of these medications or these procedures. What the Cigna policy says is we won't cover gender affirming care for gender transition for transgender, you know, so it's clearly discriminating on the basis of gender identity. And so she refuses to dismiss the case. All right, well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to, oh my God, we're gonna talk about Trump policies. All right, we're back. So anytime a president is outgoing, there's a new president and we see a bunch of policies being overturned. And this is an attempt by a group of Trump henchmen to try to keep many of his policies, anti-trans policies in place. Um, and we have a judge here who was probably one of the most anti-trans judges that I've seen um, nominated and actually confirmed uh, by President Trump, uh, despite all of the efforts to defeat the nomination. So this case is his, and we're going to talk about it. Amarillo, Texas. There is only one judge. This is in the Northern District of Texas, which is so big geographically that they have a lot of court courthouses in relatively smaller cities. So uh, this one full-time federal district judge in Amarillo, Texas. His name is Matthew J. Kazmarek. Matthew J. Kazmarek was such a controversial Trump appointment that he had he had to appoint, he had to nominate him three times to get him through. Uh, during his first year, he, no, he nominated him 
Uh, the nomination was returned by the Senate at the end of that session. He renominated him in the next year, 2018, and it was returned. Even though the Republicans were controlling the Senate, it was so controversial, they couldn't get it through to a, to a committee vote and a floor vote. Finally, on the third time, he got through on a party line vote in committee and a party line vote in the Senate. Uh, he was, among other things, controversial because of the statements he made about gay and transgender people. Okay, he, he said gay people are disordered. And you know where he got that from? He is a devout Catholic. Uh, he, uh, he said, what was it called? The Red Mask Society or something. He's like, he's, the Catholic Church says that homosexuals are intrinsically disordered people. And so he uses the word disorder to describe gay people. And he says, transgender people, he said, that's delusional. They're, they're operating under a delusion that they're a different sex. He said these things publicly. He made these statements on the record before he was nominated to be a federal judge. And so you can bet that the LGBT lobbying groups strongly lobbied against him. And I have a feeling that may have contributed to these delays that he finally they put him through, but uh, well, you know, I so I would think <laughs> if a case comes before him involving transgender rights, and this yeah. is a case involving transgender rights, shouldn't he be recusing himself? Right? Isn't yeah. there appearance of of that that uh, that any transgender litigant would think that uh, he's not going to get a fair shake from a judge who thinks he's delusional? Right. Did, did Especially when this involves the issue here? of this is this is this is about the uh, the issue of gender affirming care. Well, no, that's the funny thing because uh, the plaintiffs are a bunch of doctors who claim that the approach of the Department of Health and Human Services to the issue of gender affirming care is uh, not supported by the Affordable Care Act, and they want a declaratory judgment that they have a right to continue practicing the way they've been practicing regardless. And uh, they're suing the government. And the government can be sued in any district court in the country because the government is everywhere. The government is like God, it's omnipresent, right? <laughs> it's the brooding omnipresence in the sky, like the common law described by Justice Holmes. So, uh, so they decided to sue in Amarillo, Texas. Why do you think they decided to sue in Amarillo, Texas? Because the only judge in Amarillo, Texas, before whom the case is going to be, is Judge Kaczmarek, who's on record as to believing the transgender people are delusional. Uh, he's a Trump-appointed judge. He's not going to voluntarily recuse himself and bump the case over to another district, or not another district, another courthouse, because he's the only judge in Amarillo. Why is it in Amarillo? We're not told where these doctors practice, other than the fact that two of them practice in Texas and one of them practices in California. But we're not told where in Texas they practice, but the government could be sued anywhere. And you don't really have a venue issue here. I mean, the, the venue issues are because of the government, the dependent, whether the, it's an inconvenient venue for the defendant to be sued and the government could be sued everywhere. Uh, and the government is not moving uh, for to recuse either. They're claiming uh, that the plaintiffs don't have standing because nobody has ever enforced anything against them. And they're claiming that under the Bostock decisions reasoning, uh, the anti-discrimination provisions of the Affordable Care Act cover gender identity. 
Okay, so they're before Judge Kosmarek, who we already know uh, doesn't believe that transgender people exist as such. Uh, so first of all, he says, well, after Biden took office and the new crew came in to run HHS, they sent out a notification that they were reversing the Trump administration's interpretation. Because you, you may recall in the weeks in January, there were a few weeks while Trump was still president until January 21st, and they were putting stuff out. They were putting out regulations like crazy. They were putting out guidance. They were putting out interpretations, all kinds of stuff. And they were insisting, including in, in something they put out just days before the inauguration, that the Bostock decision didn't apply to any statute except Title VII. And, and of course, the Biden people came in and they reversed that. And they sent a notification out to everybody covered under the Affordable Care Act, all the, all the you know, practitioner, medical practitioners and insurance companies and hospitals, et cetera. They said, we take the opposite position from the Trump administration. We think that the anti-discrimination requirement of the Affordable Care Act does apply to sexual orientation and gender identity claims. Okay. And we intend to enforce it. All right. So the judge says, and, you know, putting that notice out, the judge says more or less gives them standing because they've been told they've, they've described their practice. They've described, they say, we've had transgender patients. We've had minors who were transgender patients. We have situations where we think it's not appropriate to provide particular treatments. We're afraid we're going to get sued. We're afraid we're going to get sued either by uh, patients who we turn down or deny treatments that they want, or will be sued by HHS enforcing section 1557, which they can do on their own motion. Uh, and so we have a reasonable fear of prosecution and therefore we have standing. And he says, sure, sure, sure. I mean, he wants to decide the case. He's not gonna decide they don't have standing. So he's, he decides they have standing because the government has said we're serious about enforcing this, even though none of them has ever uh, had an enforcement action or even investigation or a complaint against them. Uh, and they all claim that they've been treating transgender patients and that they've been providing gender affirming care when they think it's appropriate. They think it's appropriate when someone's an adult. They don't think it's appropriate when someone's a minor. And two of them are in Texas where of course the governor has told them that it's child abuse to provide this care. But in next month's edition of the podcast, we'll talk about how that uh, litigation is proceeding because there have been some developments in mid-May, but uh, we won't we won't get into that because that'll be the June one of. But then turning, I'll be listening. <laughs> then turning to uh, the claim by the government that there's a failure to state a case here, because it's clear that gender identity discrimination is covered under Section 1557, and they they point to the Bostock decision, etc. And now the judge says, well, you know, there isn't unanimity on this, on whether uh, Section 1557 covers gender identity. For one thing, we don't have a decision by the Fifth Circuit to that effect. And we don't have a decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to that effect. Therefore, in this district court, there's no binding precedent that tells me it is. Now, I can see the argument, but I can see the argument on the other side, that the wording, and he really... He, he zeroes in on the wording. He says, the Bostock decision was discrimination because of sex. And so the court used a but-for analysis and under Title VII, if uh, a characteristic that's listed in the statute or covered by the statute is even a contributing factor 
to a, a, an adverse decision by an employer, then it's covered by Title VII. But he says the wording, the wording of uh, Title IX is different. And the wording of Title IX is what binds us under the Affordable Care Act. The wording is on the basis of sex, not because of sex, on the basis of sex. One might construe that to mean solely because of sex. Or as uh, the plaintiffs point out, if you go through Title IX pretty carefully, you will find various places where it's clear that Congress signaled a binary concept of sex. There are men, there are women, there are boys, there are girls. Educational institutions are entitled to have single gender restrooms. They're entitled to have single gender locker rooms and shower rooms, et cetera. Uh, they're entitled to treat men and women differently as long as they don't treat one group adversely compared to the other group. But it's not clear from the language that gender identity would be covered under Title IX. The Supreme Court hasn't told us so, the Fifth Circuit hasn't told us so. So within this circuit and in this district court, it's an open question of law. And so we can't dismiss on the grounds of failure to state a claim. So this case will proceed. And uh, in, in the headline I wrote for this article, I refer to this organization that brought the suit as the Trump, Trump alumni group. Right. Trump alumni group. But actually, uh, to tell you who some of these alumni are, the president and board chair of this organization uh, is Stephen Miller. Oh, God. Uh, and they're calling it the America First Legal Foundation, because <laughs> after all, Trump's slogan was America First. So oh the God. America First Legal Foundation, Stephen Miller, president and board chair. You know who else is on the board? Tell me. Mark Meadows. You remember Mark Meadows, chief of what staff? What a gem. Chief of staff. And who else? Matthew Whitaker, former acting attorney general after he, he got rid of uh, Jeff Sessions. Uh, who else? Uh, Russ Vogt, who was the director of the Office of Management and Budget under Trump. Who else is on the board? Gene Hamilton, former senior counselor to the Secretary of Homeland Security and All lead right. counsel in this case. I can't. I can't. No, it's the Trump alumni group. There are a few others who aren't uh, administration people, but they were certainly the boss. No, but they were certainly fellow travelers. So, you know, it's it's like the Trump alumni group, and they're out there defending Trump's policies by attacking Biden's policies when they try to reverse Trump's policies. Yikes! Yeah, I remember I was working for Lambda Legal when Judge Kaczmarek came through, uh, and yes, we aggressively opposed uh, him and tried to defeat his nomination. But alas, uh, you know, he's pretty—he's about as bad as you can get. So, uh, Art, what's our of note? Our of note. I'm, I'm doing a prison thing on our of note. We had an article by Bill Rolls, who does our prisoner uh, cases. Uh, headline, federal judge allows sexually battered inmate to proceed on a failure to screen claim under the Prison Rape Elimination Act. This is a big deal. The Prison Rape Elimination Act was passed by Congress in response to reports and studies showing that rape was endemic in prisons. Now, prisons are single-sex institutions, so what we're talking about is uh, men raping men in prison, and the most frequent victims are weaker, smaller, effeminate, transgender, gay. They tend to be the victims of prison rape to an extraordinary extent. 
so Congress did a study, they held hearings, they passed the Prison Rape Elimination Act. It requires, among other things, that every incoming prisoner be screened for potential vulnerability to being raped, to being sexually attacked by other prisoners. And anyone who, who appears particularly vulnerable, and that includes anyone who's openly gay or transgender, has to be protected. Because under the Eighth Amendment, uh, rape is considered cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, you're not sentenced to rape in prison, although as a practical matter, it seems like that at times when you look at these statistics. Uh, so you got to scream and you got to provide protection. There's a Supreme Court opinion from the 1980s, Farmer versus Brennan, which uh, says, well, the Eighth Amendment standard is deliberate indifference uh, to the and deliberate indifference to the safety of a prisoner. Uh, can subject prison officials to liability, personal liability. Uh, and uh, they, they don't have uh, immunity from that, but they have to know, they have to know that there's a problem. They have to know that someone needs the protection. And that used to be the all-purpose defense. Oh, we didn't know, we didn't know. So the Prison Rape Elimination Act says you have to do a screening. But a lot of prisons don't bother with that or it's very perfunctory, or they, uh, they do the screening, but that they don't act on it. Uh, and the problem is the Prison Rape Elimination Act does not expressly create a private cause of action for prisoners who are raped or sexually abused by other prisoners or by guards. It doesn't provide any uh, private right of action. And so far, uh, prisoners uh, who tend to be pro se, which is one of the complications, not knowing how to, how to draft a complaint that will stand up to a motion to, or even stand up to screening, not, not even a motion to dismiss. Pro se complaints get screened first before they're even served on the other party. Uh, so uh, most of these cases die because uh, the court says the Prison Rape Elimination Act isn't enforceable. You've got to show me under Farmer v. Brennan and the Eighth Amendment, you've got to meet the deliberate indifference test, and then you have to show that they were aware and you can't sue them for not screening you. Well, here's a judge who disagreed with that, uh, Judge McNulty uh, in uh, the uh, District of New Jersey, Judge Kevin McNulty. He is allowing a cause of action under the Prison Rape Elimination Act to go forward. Now, there's also an Eighth Amendment claim in the case. This involved a, a pro se inmate, pro se case named Kevin Rollet Jr. He identifies as LGBT, according to the opinion, it doesn't say which. I don't think he identifies as lesbian, but he identifies as either gay or trans. And uh, he says he was placed in a double cell. He was not screened. He was placed in a double cell in general population with a sex offender who sexually assaulted him. You know, he should have been put in into uh, a single cell or he should have been put at some prisons. There are so many transgender and gay prisoners that they can have a separate wing and they're less likely to have these problems. But uh, they took no steps to protect him. Uh, he said that as soon as he was put in with this other inmate, he was subjected to comments of a violent and sexual nature. He made several complaints. He invoked the Prison uh, Rape Elimination Act. He specifically mentioned it. They didn't take any action until after he was raped. Then they moved him. Then they separated him. So the judge is allowing him to sue the responsible prison officials. 
Yeah, that's that's important. That's a no. That's a huge, huge uh, development. And yeah, we don't have any any court of appeals yet that has, in an outright open way, authorized suits under the Prison Rape Elimination Act. If we wow. can get more district judges to recognize the cause of action, it would be a big help. Yeah, because uh, it's an absolute standard. You're supposed to do this. Right. There's no question. And uh, the Federal Bureau of Prisons has regulations out for the federal prisons. For the state and local prisons, it's a different story. It, it really varies. Wow. Art, it's been such a pleasure. I'm going to say goodbye for the last podcast, but not goodbye for long. I'll probably see you very, very soon, maybe at the gala, uh, which is on the 26th. Yeah, I have jury duty. We have jury that day, but I, I should be at the gala at some point. We also have commencement that day, and I'm wondering whether I'm even going to make it to commencement because the uh, hearing may go. Busy, 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 but let's raise a glass to to you and to me and toast. I can't wait to see you. Yeah, it'll be great. All right. Bye, Art. Bye-bye. Take care. And thank you so much for listening. This and future episodes of the Legal LGBT Podcast can be found on iTunes, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you for being a loyal listener. I can't wait to hear what this podcast has in store. It isn't going anywhere. It's been around since before I was here, and I know it's just going to continue to grow its influence and hopefully have more and more listeners coming back each and every time. So thank you so much. This is Eric Lesh signing off.